Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. I'm really excited about today's guest, Ryan Holiday. You might have heard about him, or you might have seen one of his videos on social media, or you might have read one of his books, or you may have walked into his bookstore in Texas. Ryan Holiday is a best-selling author, modern-day philosopher, bookstore owner in Austin, Texas. He's the author of a number of New York Times bestsellers, The Daily Stoic, Discipline is Destiny, Ego is Enemy, Obstacle is the Way. You might be sensing a trend here. He has made a point of reviving what's called Stoic philosophy. This is a philosophy that was made famous by the ancient Greeks and Romans, and he has figured out a way to translate it for our modern world in a way that is both practical and helpful. It was a really informative and inspirational conversation we had recently. We nerd out on history. We also go through how the ancient philosophers live their lives and how that can inform what we do. The conversation is very cool, actually, because I learned about him first from my wife, and he first learned about me from his wife. So I started following him. He started following me on Instagram. We connected, and that is what has led to this conversation. Ryan Holiday is also out with a new book called The Daily Dad, which is available wherever you get your books. We talk about that a bit in the podcast. Before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast episodes like this and extra content on our private Instagram account. It is a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News and support independent journalism. You can learn more about all of that over at mo.news slash premium. As we say on the website, the news is broken. Help us fix it. So by joining Mo News Premium, you know you're supporting what we're doing, as well as getting access to that extra podcast, that extra Instagram feed. You can do so right now for only $7 a month or $70 a year. That is actually two free months when you join the annual membership. There's also a lifetime subscription available. Again, you can check it out over at mo.news slash premium to join today. All right, with that, here's today's conversation. All right, I am so glad to have Ryan Holiday joining us on the Mo News podcast, a best-selling author, a bookstore owner, teacher, lecturer, modern philosopher. Am I missing anything, Ryan? No, I guess that I guess that about covers it. <laughs> You're a man of many talents. Um, want to start by saying I was first introduced to you, or I should say, your books by my wife, then girlfriend. We were just a few months into our relationship, and she got the Daily Stoic. And at that point, I was the executive producer of the Evening News. I was working 20 hours a day, a lot of chaos. Um, And she made a point of saying, every night, we're going to read from the Daily Stoic. I would go on to propose to her, marry her. And I should say that uh, we're not reading the Daily Stoic every night anymore, but it was foundational in our relationship. That's incredible. Well, uh, as I was telling you before we started, my wife introduced me to your work at some point during the pandemic. She kept talking about stuff and I was like, where are you getting all of this? And she's like, oh, it's this Instagram account. And so that's how I found out about your work. So I actually am a big believer in the in the sort of spouse recommendations as being maybe the most important form of viral marketing that there is. Like if you make something that's good enough that people's one spouse insists that the other spouse read it or listen to it or check it out, that that's a sign that you've like you've really done something that's working. It's the it's the highest recommendation. And by the way, I'm not here today if it's not for my spouse who was pushing me throughout the pandemic. You know, I thought the Instagram thing honestly was going to just be a temporary thing that was keeping me busy for a couple months, and it turned out to be the main thing. I mean that that happened with Daily Stoic also. I mean my 
my plan was I, I wrote this book that's for people who don't know, it's one page a day of Stoic philosophy. And and actually even that I didn't I didn't really think would work. I like regular books. That that's the kind of books that that I read where you read them from cover to cover in, you know, a couple sittings. And my agent suggested doing this one page a day version. And I did that. And then I thought, you know, I'll I'll um I'll do an email also. I'll do an email every day. And uh, so I did those two things. And then someone on my team suggested that we do an Instagram account that's a quote a day. Um, and I said, okay. And you know, now that account has something like 2 million followers. So I, I, I think sometimes people who make stuff, right, whether you're a musician or a screenwriter or an author, or an entrepreneur, or an inventor, or I don't know, somebody who loves coffee, you, 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 think, you think about it in terms of the medium that you're most comfortable with. And oftentimes that's not the most reachable of the mediums or the formats. And you have to be open to trying these different things because you never know where the message and the medium can intersect in this kind of explosive way. And, and certainly that happened for you. It, it, it's also happened to me a couple of times. And it's, it's always really cool when you're thinking about it one way and then the audience says, no, actually, we want to hear about it this way. Yeah. And if you can meet us where we are, we can do something really cool together. Well, th that's one of the things, you know, that is so important to realize also as somebody who's worked in media for a while is you could have you could have the best story. You could have the most incredible um, interview. If you're not presenting it in the right way, in the right format that the audience is consuming it on, it goes into the a pit. It goes into a black hole, you know? Yes. No, totally. And on, on my first book about Stoic philosophy, I was actually very cognizant of the fact that although I am a nerd who loves ancient philosophy and would read anything about this topic in basically any format, that the average person does not wake up and think, you know what I would like to read about today? I'd like to read about an obscure school of ancient philosophy. <laughs> and so my, my first book, The Obstacle is the Way, is a book uh, largely influenced by Stoic philosophy, but but the word Stoicism maybe appears like two or three times in the whole book. Um, and so I've always tried to think a lot about where is the audience and how do I take what I have to say and make it uh, accessible and practical and shareable to them on the terms uh, that they have put out there. And so, I yes, I think sometimes people think, if you make good stuff, there's there's an Emerson quote. So he said this a long time ago. He said, you know, if you build a better mousetrap, the the world will beat a path to your door. Uh, and I think we'd like to think that's true, you know, in a capitalistic society, that if you make a superior product, of course, people will rush to you, right? If you build it, they will come. That's not true at all. It's not even remotely true. It's so uh, not true that the opposite is actually true. You have to find a way to beat a path to people's door to get them to hear about what you're doing. That That's ultimately how anything breaks through. Marketing. Yes. As we record this, by the way, it's April 25th, and uh, your daily stoic for today is there's nothing wrong with being wrong, Ryan. Yes. One of my one of my favorite quotes in in meditations, Marcus Aurelius talks about how when people show you that they're that you're wrong, they're not harming you in any way. They're actually helping you, right? No one wants to be wrong, and so when someone shows you that, um, you know that you're mistaken, they're not admonishing you; they're aiding you. And 
obviously, I think we can all accept that this is true. I think it's an interesting thing to find in the private diary of the most powerful man in the world who was more or less seen as infallible, who certainly could have come to believe with all the power that he had, that he was infallible. It's a, it's a very important lesson, but the more successful one becomes or the more of a history that one has being correct, the harder it is to actually stick with that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an important lesson for leadership, right? That mm-hmm. the great leaders don't surround themselves with yes men. They surround themselves with people who challenge their thinking. And yet, pretty uncommon, uh, we can probably name some recent leaders who didn't do that. Curious, though, because, and I think we're all guilty of this, I myself included, is you get defensive, right? When it turns out you're mm-hmm. wrong. Your, your knee jerk is to defend yourself and sometimes double down. Even if you know internally that you were wrong, admitting you were wrong is so challenging. Would love to hear your thoughts or the thoughts of the Stoics around that, uh, dealing with um, the challenge of recognition of being wrong and why it's actually a positive thing to be able to admit that and, and how you work towards that. Well, there's different types of being wrong, right? Um, I think just admitting that one is incorrect, although it can be difficult, is certainly less difficult than when one's identity is tied up in the view that's happening, right? This is why, you know, there is essentially zero amount of evidence at this point that could convince someone who has been ride or die with Donald Trump for the last six years oh, yes, I was conned, or oh, yes, I have been misled, or oh, yes, this person actually doesn't know what they're talking about or is problematic for the following reasons. At at this point, it's very hard to do when you have flown a flag in front of your house, when you have, you know, gone to rallies, when you have- When your identity identity. is tied up with your politics, when your politics becomes your identity. Yes. And this is true for both parties, of course, but look at the difference between the reaction on the right and the left between the firing of Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've watched both of them, but I, I probably more identify, let's say, as a CNN viewer. But but my my relationship with the people that I consume news from is not one of they are representatives of me. That we are an insurgency against the elites or against wokeism or whatever, right? So. The fact that one of them gets fired, it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know, I don't know this person. He doesn't mean anything to me. Our identities aren't tied up together. But my, my point is identity makes admitting error harder. But I think the hardest thing, the reason admitting one is wrong is usually so tough is because it doesn't end there. So it, simply saying, oh, I thought it was going to rain today and it looks like it doesn't rain, right? There, there's very little in that for me. The problem is when one has gone down a, a road, identity or otherwise, and admitting error means a number of changes, right? When you have to go now in a different direction, you have to sell the stock that you purchased, you have to uh, abandon the company that you founded, right? You ha- When you have to admit error in such a way that it forces you to make changes in your life, well, we'd rather not do that. Uh, we'd rather not have to admit error and apologize or admit we were complicit in something. And so I think one of the reasons it's so hard you know, just just saying, hey, I was incorrect here. It's usually not what is at stake. 
we have to understand that the person that we're arguing with is tied up in this view in a number of ways and that we're actually asking them to do something very, very hard when we're pointing out that they're incorrect. We're asking them to admit something about themselves or acknowledge that a certain number of changes or decisions have to be made in light of this new stance. And that's usually expensive in a variety of forms. So I want to start with your story, Ryan, the backstory. Okay. Um, take me on your path. Uh, you know, for example, like I, my parents like to st- tell the story that I was six years old and uh, was already asking for copies of the Chicago Tribune. Like they, yes. I knew at a very young age that there was something about news and journalism. Where did it start for you, your passion for the Stoics? Uh, t- take me on your journey to, to best-selling author. It, it was a little later for me. I, I always loved books, but certainly um, growing up in Sacramento, California, my, my father was a police officer. My mother was a school principal. There wasn't anyone that I knew that wrote books. And certainly we weren't you know, geographically even close to a place where people who made books might live. Right. And so it it was very inconceivable to me that this was a thing that people did. Right. I knew people consumed books, uh, but how those books were actually made, this wasn't a thing that became even, you know, comprehensible to me until I went away to college. I went to college in Southern California. And I I actually remember it was pretty early. It was maybe, um, maybe even like a seminar before my freshman year. And they had a woman, uh, a professor named Susan Strait. Uh, and we all had to read this novel that this professor had written. And I just remember going, wait, like this professor that we're talking to wrote a book that I am reading um, that won awards. It wasn't like one of those tech, you know, where the, sometimes a professor assigns you to read their boring textbook. Like this was an actual book that that I had seen in a bookstore uh, that we were all assigned to read. And that was actually like, I think one of the first big breakthroughs for me, the realization that this was a profession, not unlike basically any other professions, and that anyone could do it if they chose to do it. So um, Stoicism came, you know, maybe a year or so later for me, I, I ended up reading a book called uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And it was the same thing, again, understanding, although obviously the, this book had been published 2000 years earlier, or written 2000 years earlier, it was again, the idea that anyone could do this. Uh, theoretically, I could do it. And that it didn't have to be this abstract, theoretical, impractical thing, but that philosophy was more or less advice about how to be a person in the world. That's what I took from Marcus Aurelius' meditation. And uh, obviously, it it was many years later that I I ultimately wrote my first book. But those were, the the, I think, the first two breakthroughs that I had, the, the idea that, you know, this wasn't some exclusive club that you had to be born into that anyone could do it. And sometimes it just takes seeing someone do something to help you realize that you can do it also. So we've used the term a a couple of times here. I'd I'd love for you to uh, help define it. You've mentioned Marcus Aurelius, former emperor of Rome 2000 years ago. Um, Stoics, Stoicism. Yes. Explain the concept. So Stoicism is a philosophy that originates in Athens right around the time of the death of Alexander the Great. Uh, and it's built around uh, the four cardinal virtues. These are actually the, the same cardinal virtues of Christianity. Cardinal means um, cardo. It comes from the, the Latin cardos or hinge. But basically, uh, the, the, the virtues of Stoicism are courage, temperance or discipline, justice and wisdom. 
So it's a philosophy that basically says, we don't control what's happening in the world. We don't control what other people do, but we control what we do. We control how we respond to what happens in the world. We control what other what, how we respond to what other people do. And that we should always respond with courage and discipline and justice and wisdom. These are the sort of watchwords that a Stoic tries to live by. And how did it work back then? You know, when, when they came up with this concept, uh, how effective were, were these teachings? Because I feel like still relevant today, 2,000 years later, I feel like you have to tell yourself sometimes, I can't control the world around me. I can control how I react to it. I mean, I, I, I have the, them tattooed on my wrist here as a reminder. I think they were as relevant today as they were then. It, it was interesting. You know, today a philosopher is a university professor a philosopher is a person with an unpronounceable last name. They're French or German. You know, they, they, they ask impossible questions. You know, how do we know we're not living in a computer simulation? You know, uh, do we exist or not? Um, you know, they, they, they're concerned primarily with these complex metaphysical issues. In the ancient world, philosophy was much more practical, much more accessible, but also much more uh, popular, right? Uh, the, the, the philosophers in the ancient world were like rock stars. They were comedians. Uh, they were public figures. They were influencers. They would have had a Netflix special if Netflix existed back then, right? That's exactly right. I mean, there weren't that many people back then, first and foremost, but these people were thinking about these things for the first time. And it's kind of remarkable to wrap your head around that, but they were. They were coming up with these ideas for the first time. You know, they were thinking about some of these issues for the first time and, and they were struggling still with the same questions that we're struggling with today. This idea of like, what is the good life? What is a person to do? What should a person not do? And although, you know, they had this system of the gods, uh, and, and they, they were, a, uh, there was a sort of a religious sense. There wasn't, uh, an oppressive church, let's say, or organized religion that answered these questions for people that told people, Hey, if you don't do this, you will go to hell or that you should do this because God wants you to. Right. And so it, it was remarkably fresh and helpful and interesting and urgently relevant to regular people. And not, and not just regular people. I mean, one of the great Stoics, Epictetus, um, is a slave, right? So I don't want people to think that, that Stoicism is this purely sort of privileged uh, source of thinking, right? So Marcus Aurelius, his favorite philosopher is Epictetus, and his predecessor, Hadrian, is known to drop in on Epictetus's classes, right? So, so these were questions that the most powerful Romans and Greeks were asking, as well as the most uh, disempowered or disenfranchised Greeks and Romans were thinking about, because fundamentally we're all people trying to figure out what we're supposed to do after we wake up in the morning. S speaking of which, um, you like to mention Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome. Yes. Talking about how he doesn't want to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> yes. Ex ex explain that story. You know, my, my favorite passage here, I'll, you want me just to read it to you? I think it's go quite for beautiful. It. Yeah, go for so it. So this hit me, you can imagine this hitting me as a, uh, as a college uh, freshman or sophomore, you know, with an early morning class. Oh, um, dude, dude, I never booked a class. You know, actually, 
So most of my classes, I realized by sophomore year, I should book a 1030 class and beyond. But yes. funny enough, freshman year, I took philosophy and it was an 8 a.m. course. And I definitely missed a few courses. I actually, I, I didn't even think about that until this just came up. I, I had an 8 a.m. class on Aristotle when I when I read this very passage in Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. This is the opening of book five. If people are thinking about reading Marcus Aurelius, I prefer the Gregory Hayes translation for the modern library. I think it's the most readable of all of them. But anyway, this is what he opens it with. He says, at dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, tell yourself, I have to go to work as a human being. What do I have to complain of, he says, if I was going to do what I was born for, for the things I was brought into this world to do? Or is this what I was created for, to huddle under the blankets and stay warm? And it's, it's, it's a really good encapsulation, both of the thinking of Stoic philosophy, but also the style of, of Stoic philosophy. Because the next line, he goes, but it's nicer here. And then he says, so you were born to feel nice, right? And, and it's, it's this lovely debate. Right. He's Marcus Aurelius is writing meditations. He has no idea it will be published. He'd probably be mortified that we're talking about this right now if you were alive today. This is his private thoughts. And he's having a dialogue with himself about you, you could you could argue he's having a dialogue with his lower self and his higher self. There's the part of him that knows what he was put here to do, that knows what his obligations are, that knows there's a lot of impact he could have. And then there's the lower self that doesn't want to get out of bed because it's cold, because he's tired, and he's trying to urge himself, push himself to you know, put his feet on the floor and get out of bed and go to work. And if that's not a timeless discussion, uh, I'm not sure there is one. So Marcus Aurelius, so he's emperor of Rome for about 20 years. He's writing this yes. while he's emperor? Yes, yes. And we know, we know even where he was writing it. He probably wrote this somewhere between Vienna and Budapest uh, while uh, leading the Roman army uh, in what's now called the Marcomannic Wars. When we look back on that era, you know, they had slaves. There's a lot of morally questionable mm -hmm. conduct the Roman Empire was, was up to. And yet they, you know, wrote in this way and you take lessons from that. How do you, and, and I think we still deal with this in modern terms in the U.S., right? Thomas mm -hmm. Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence. At the same time, owned slaves. Um, yes. We have a bunch of our founding fathers and various leaders through the years, even 20th century leaders that we had, where when you you know lift up the cover, you realize they, they were not perfect. Uh, in mm -hmm. some cases, very imperfect. How do you overcome sort of, this person was engaged in X, but had some really interesting lessons when it comes to Y? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, What's interesting about Marcus is that he is both a product of his time and then he is both very good at questioning and pushing back against his time. So I'll give you uh, an interesting anecdote about Marcus and slavery. So ro the Romans have slavery. It's a different form of slavery. It's not necessarily race-based. Uh, there isn't uh, usually an exit to the slavery like you were a slave for the first 30 years of your life, which is the case of, of Epictetus. Um, but, but Marcus, in the beginning of Meditations, he talks about how um, he's proud of himself for never having laid a hand on his slaves. So he clearly is pushing back against the brutality and the excesses of slavery at this time. But he never fundamentally questions the institution itself, which is interesting because you know, 500 or so years earlier, Zeno, who's the founder of Stoicism, 
makes a pretty good case against slavery altogether. So the Stoics were of a mixed bag on the issue. Um, Marcus writes, you know, interestingly enough about the common good. He writes about cosmopolitanism, the idea that he's sort of the citizen of the world. Um, he clearly learns so much from Epictetus, this slave turned philosopher. So uh, I, it's not as if he is this sort of um, full-throated endorsement of the institution itself, but we still have to think about the fact that he takes for granted the culture and time that are that he's in, and he doesn't question it fully enough. Which to me, instead of spending a lot of time, um, let's say, uh, condemning someone who lived 2,000 years ago, what I take from this is, what are the institutions that are around today that we're not critical enough of that in the future people will make a similar sort of condemnation of, you know, they'll point out where we didn't go far enough. I think the other the other interesting place for this in, in Marcus is that Marcus is also an emperor, right? Uh, which an institution that I think most of us would argue is is inherently unjust. But he seems to have mixed views even on this. You know, he, he sort of gets assigned to this job. His father was an emperor. He's adopted. But he, but he has a mixed view of it. There's an interesting passage at the beginning of Meditations where he's thanking uh, one of his teachers. And he says, uh, from him, I learned to love my family, truth, and justice. And he says, it was through him that I encountered Thrasia, Helvidius, Cato, Dion, and Brutus, and conceived of a society of equal laws governed by equality of status and of speech and of rulers who respect the liberty of their subjects above all else. So it's a beautiful idea, which he was certainly closer to than, I don't know, Nero or some of his predecessors or successors, but it's not as if he restored Rome to being a republic, as is the plot of the movie Gladiator. He, he, there is a, a part of Stoicism that I think we can be critical of where it has a strong sense of how the world should be, but maybe doesn't take active enough steps to making the world closer to being that thing. There is an acceptance and a passivity in Stoicism that perhaps wasn't revolutionary enough, although those names Brutus, Helvidius, uh, Cato, these are all Stoics that get grouped by historians under the label of the Stoic opposition, who were sort of the perpetual thorn in the side of tyrants like Julius Caesar and Nero and Domitian and, and, and other rulers. So it's a, it's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated issue, which it's, it's hard to come down fully on. So give us a sense. Stoicism lasted for how long? It's the it starts with the Greeks, goes to the Romans, and then what? When does it start to make its comeback? Yeah, you could it, basically it starts with the Greeks around the year 300 BC, and then you could argue it reaches its sort of pinnacle with Marcus Aurelius around the you know the the year 160 AD. So we get you know four or five hundred years of it. It doesn't like immediately go away. But what happens is that the decline of Stoicism as a civic philosophy intersects almost perfectly with the rise of Christianity as as a religion. And there's a there's a lot of overlaps. Seneca and Jesus are born roughly the same year. Uh, they both appear in the work of Tacitus. And there's even some purported letters 
between Seneca and some of the saints, they're probably fake. But Seneca's brother, for instance, Gaio, is in the Bible. He's a judge in the Roman Empire, and he judges a case involving St. Paul. So if you want to get a sense of when this is all happening, it's right around the time of some of the most familiar stories and names and characters in Western civilization or Western Christianity. And I often think back to how different might the world have been had Stoicism won out over, say, Christianity, what might that world have looked like? Wait, take us back to that era, because I don't think people, so at the time, you know, Judaism is a couple thousand years old already Mm -hmm. as the kind of first monotheistic religion there. Um, But then you have the rise of Greece, Rome, the various philosophies that this was really a, there was a real competition Mm -hmm. in that era 2000 years ago. Yeah, I'll I'll give you another couple of quick anecdotes that might uh, sound familiar to people. So, so Paul is now known as St. Paul, but in then before he's canonized, he's known as Paul of Tarsus. And Tarsus is kind of the secondary home of Stoic philosophy. It's where a bunch of the Stoics come from. So St. Paul would have studied Stoic philosophy. If people are familiar with the name Justin Martyr, Justin Martyr wasn't known as Justin Martyr. He was just Justin. Justin studies Stoic philosophy and then gets in in basically a dispute over philosophy with another philosopher whose name escapes me. And he basically gets brought up on charges for being a Christian. And he's asked by this guy, Junius Rusticus, who's the mayor of Rome, Junius Rusticus asks, basically says, look, you know the law, the the Roman law says you can't worship these false gods. If you can just disavow your Christian beliefs, say that you worship the Roman gods, you can go. Uh, And he doesn't. He refuses to do this. This is what makes him a martyr. And Rusticus sentences him to this very brutal death, which you can read about in the Christian text. Well, Junius Rusticus is the man who introduces Marcus Aurelius to the writings of Epictetus and philosophy. He is Marcus Aurelius's philosophy teacher. So all of these names and figures are swirling about at the same time. And what what so struck me, I think, I grew up Christian. We went to church every Sunday. I was Catholic. Um, I was familiar with all these names. I was familiar with all these prescriptions. I was familiar with the cardinal virtues. What so struck me about reading Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and these Stoics is that they're writing at the same time, but they're not making a supernatural argument about these same things. They're not saying, hey, if you do X, Y, or Z, you will go to hell. They're saying, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will be miserable. This is a bad way to live. And so the Stoics or the philosophers are basically making a rational argument for being good, whereas the religious argument is saying God wants you to do X, Y, or Z. And I think that is a very interesting distinction. And I think that partly explains the resurgence of Stoicism today. As people leave organized religion, it doesn't remove the need to figure out, hey, what are good behaviors and what are bad behaviors? I still would like some some advice. And the, the Stoics have have basically been there for 2,000 years waiting for the pendulum to swing back in the other direction. Well, it's so interesting, as, as we speak, one story we've been covering recently is the, the push in your state right now, Texas, to put the Ten Commandments in every mm-hmm. classroom, a piece of yeah. legislation. Um, and it struck me as you're talking about kind of this um, debate 2,000 years ago uh, about the idea of separation of church and state, that there mm-hmm. was 
you know, there were Greek gods, there were Roman gods, and yet there were these various philosophies. Where where was the separation of church and state back then, pre-rise, you know, of kind of mass monotheistic religion? Uh, obviously, if in the case of, of Justin Martyr lets us know there was no sort of clear separation of church and state. There And there, there was also no sense of sort of religious tolerance, right? Um, but there was this sense the Roman gods were more of a civic institution than they were a spiritual institution, let's say. So there was a set of practices or habits in the Roman world. This was called the mos morium, or basically the old ways. There was just a set of practices and beliefs that everyone was for, uh, was was expected to subscribe to and not rock the boat against. And so Christianity is inherently disruptive of that. Uh, and there was a, a, a skepticism or a suspicion of that. But there's a great quote from, I think it's Flaubert. He says, um, he says, between Cicero and Marcus Aurelius, he says, when the gods had ceased to be and Christ had not yet come, man stood alone in the universe. Now, his timeline isn't exactly right there, and it's not as simple as he was saying. But this was a unique time in human history in which, yeah, religion was on the decline and philosophical inquiry was on was ascendant and Christianity sort of disrupts that and ultimately supplants it, uh, does a good job incorporating a lot of the ideas from philosophy into the Bible. But, but, but the Romans had a sense of philosophy as a way of life, which is very different than how we think of philosophy today. We think of it primarily as a series of thought exercises rather than a guide to living. Philosophy can feel, though, overwhelming to people, mm -hmm. right? These are profound thoughts. Um, sure. You know, one named people, you know, we, Socrates, Aristotle, uh, Plato, yeah. uh, Zenu. Uh, I guess Marcus Aurelius breaks that with, you know, two names there. But yes. profound thoughts that you might need to read and read over again. And, and you've made it your um, life here, Ryan, to try to explain it, to try to drill down, to try to break those thoughts down. Uh, try to make it up, uh, applicable to your day-to-day -day life. When people say that, oh, philosophy, it just seems like too high, you know, up, up in the clouds for me, like it's too profound and it just, I have basic things to do. I have a job, I have kids, etc. Why do I need to concern myself with philosophy? What, what can it do for me? And how can I uh, comprehend it in a way uh, that works with my fast-paced lifestyle and all the things I got to accomplish every day? Well, I, I say in the intro of the Daily Stoic that I, I basically picked the least of appealing phrase in the English language to write a book about Stoic philosophy. People think Stoic means an emotionless robot, and then they think philosophy means impractical abstraction or 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 theoretical nonsense. And so I get it. This, this isn't something that people think. Oh, I need that in my life. But it is important that we look at the lives of the Stoics. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, as we talked about, is the emperor of Rome. Epictetus is a slave dealing with incredible adversity and difficulty. You have Zeno, who is a, a merchant uh, who loses everything in a shipwreck and has to start his life over. You have Cleanthes, who is a, a manual laborer. You have Stoics who were diplomats. You have Stoics who were men. You also have Stoics who were women. Cato, people have heard of that name. Cato is a, is a Roman senator who defies Julius Caesar. 
they they don't know as well his daughter Portia Cato who is trained in Stoic philosophy. Stoic philosophy was seen as a philosophy for both men and women. But Portia Cato is the wife of Brutus, and it's the two of them who team up to assassinate Julius Caesar, ultimately. Um, a more modern Stoic that perhaps some people have heard of is, is Admiral James Stockdale, who was a fighter pilot in Vietnam, who'd studied Epictetus when he went to grad school at Stanford. He's taken prisoner. He spent seven years in a prison camp in North Vietnam. Uh, he's, he's there alongside John McCain and, and some other famous Americans, ultimately runs for vice president. as a I was going to say candidate. what Stockdale to many people, at least in the last couple decades, is remembered for uh, being the VP candidate for Ross Perot and yeah. a sort of infamous quote during a, a vice presidential debate saying, who am I? Why am I here? It's actually funny. It's, it's, it's a shame because he's one of the greatest Americans of all time, and not just a hero, but- That's quite uh, a statement. That's quite a statement, Ryan. Let, let's put it this way. So uh, James Stockdale was shot down. He spent seven years horribly tortured, largely in solitary confinement. Uh, he spends this whole time basically encouraging, uh, supporting, fighting for his comrades. And he, he wins the Medal of Honor because- uh, one of the things that the prison guards would do is they would try to trot American prisoners out on television and get them to uh, speak ill of the United States or or to spill secrets. And 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 Stockdale gets gets this sense that um, they're going to do this to him. And so he says, "Well, can I go to the bathroom before I uh, before I go on camera?" And they go, "Sure." And he gets into the bathroom and he shatters the mirror. And he uses a piece of the mirror to cut an enormous gash across his forehead. And then he begins to beat his own face into a bloody pulp with the stool that was left in the bathroom, so disfiguring himself that he would not be camera ready and thus foil the plan of, of his captors. And another point, after months and months of relentless torture of him and his uh, and him and his comrades, he's now known to be alive. He's sort of become this hero in the United States. He tries to kill himself and he kills himself in protest, knowing that his death would reflect quite badly on his, on his captor. So, so, uh, James Stockdale is uh, a man of immense fortitude wow. and strength and selflessness and comes back, continues to serve in the Navy, just sort of does quietly does his duty. Uh, and he's asked to run by by Ross Perot uh, as a third party candidate. He feels like this is something he can't say no to because Ross Perot was so instrumental in the freeing of those POWs. So he sees it as a matter of duty. And then he gets up there and, and he's he's in that famous debate. Um, he says, who am I? Why am I here? He was attempting to ask like the existential questions of a philosopher, mm. right? He was he was. He was trying to say, like, I'm not a politician. I'm a human being who has served my country in a variety of fashions. That's why I'm here. And it says something about our sort of television or media-based culture. Uh, Dennis Miller has a great joke about this. He says that basically James Stockdale committed the one unforgivable sin of an American public figure, which is that he was bad on television. Yep. And so this man's incredible legacy basically gets totally mischaracterized and totally, uh, you know, totally misconstrued. Uh, he's now this sort of punchline. But I, I, I spoke at the Naval Academy a few weeks ago 
they worship the ground that this man walks on. There's a, there's a thing called the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership there at the at the academy, and this is the best young men and women in America, and they study his example every day because he was a philosopher. He ended up writing a number of books about Stoic philosophy after. Stockdale was a philosopher not because of what he wrote after the war, but he was a philosopher because of how he conducted himself in what he calls the laboratory of human experience that was this terrible prison. Incredible story there. I mean, I, I really appreciate you sharing that because even as somebody, you know, I try, try my best to learn as much as I can about American history, I did not know the whole backstory of Admiral Stockdale. He's an incredible man, uh, just an absolutely incredible man. And, and he he recounts as he is parachuting down into what he knows will be death or imprisonment, he says to himself, I am leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. What he saw was that this was an opportunity to put these, these, uh, these ideas into practice. His favorite Epictetus quote, Epictetus says, a prison and the podium, the podium being public life, he says, is each a place where we each have freedom, where we always have our freedom of choice. Uh, he's basically saying that it doesn't matter if you're a POW or you're the president, you always have the opportunity to live philosophically and to do your duty. And so Stockdale saw this terrible ordeal really as a testing ground uh, it was life asking him, you know, do you really believe this stuff? Is it really true? And he wanted the answer to that question to be yes. So you've written a dozen books now, Ryan? Something like that, yeah. Where should someone get started? I think it depends. Um, the Daily Stoic is obviously, I think, a pretty accessible place to start with Stoic philosophy. It's one page a day. The Obstacle is the Way is a book about solving problems in your life using Stoic philosophy. I just I'm, I'm in the middle now of, of this series on the cardinal virtues. So I did a book on courage. I did a book on discipline. The next book in the series will be about justice. And um, I'm just uh, next week. I'm coming out with uh, with a book that is a page a day of, of of stoic advice for parents. So called the Daily Dad. So I think there's a bunch of places to start. Um, but uh, but for people who are who are big fans of you on on Instagram or social media. I try to just put out lots of free stuff there too. So you can follow the Daily Stoic on, on pretty much any platform. You're prolific, Ryan. I feel like every time I pull up uh, my social media feed, regardless of platform, you're talking to me on Facebook. You're talking to me on Instagram. Uh, how, how do you approach uh, social media? What if you learned about it? And I know social media is a, a large concept and maybe you have uh, specific platforms that you enjoy. How do you get your message across there? What, what have you learned from it as it's sort of evolved, especially in the last 10 years? Well, I have a great team. And so any, any of my answers here is going to be a reflection of what I learned from the people that, that helped me do what I do. But uh, what I have learned is that these social media algorithms are the most powerful cultural forces on earth, right? They spread your message to millions of people uh, or you know, you are shouting into a void. If you figure out how they work and you figure out how to make messaging that can that can ride that wave, you can reach a lot of people. And if you don't, you can sort of toil away in obscurity. And so what I think about is I like to write books. I like these big ancient ideas from the Stoics. That's what I get up and focus on every day is writing my books, uh, write, writing the articles that I do. And then I have people on my team who try to break these things up into smaller pieces 
or to translate them into other mediums, whether that's video or audio or emails uh, or, or pictures. How do, we, how do we take something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about that the Stoics you know, came up with 2,000 years ago and has been tested now over the centuries, how do we take that and translate it in such a way that it can take advantage of these social media forces and reach lots of people? So one of the things you're trying to do is teach us how to apply these um, lessons from the Stoics to our lives. Uh, I know I, I read somewhere that you mentioned that journaling is a form of Stoic philosophy. Yes. What are some other things? Talk to me about that and other things that uh, would allow all of us, everyone here listening, to become a Stoic philosopher. It's hard to separate Stoicism from journaling. Marcus Aurelius's Meditations is a journal. Uh, Seneca's famous writings are basically letters, him writing a letter back and forth to his friend Lucilius. So a lot of the Stoic writing was never intended for publication. It was more of a discussion, either with oneself or with a friend or a colleague. Um, so but, these but were all private letters that were eventually discovered and published. Like most of them, even though Stoicism lasted several hundred years, their belief really was that no one will see these things will never see the light of day. That that that's largely true. Uh, there is clearly an eye in Seneca's writing. Seneca is a complicated figure, uh, which we could nerd out about if you like. But Seneca is a complicated figure, and and and. He clearly had an eye to posterity. He also published a number of famous plays. He also wrote essays, which very much were uh, intended for publication. And and we have to, what's interesting about Stoke philosophy is a good chunk of it just didn't survive, not because it wasn't intended to, but just because we have only a fraction of what survived from the ancient world. There was a Stoic named Chrysippus, who was the third uh, Stoic leader, um, he, he is said to have published roughly 700 different essays or articles or books. Um, zero of them survive. We, we only have fragments of Chrysippus, for instance, that appear in Seneca's letters. So um, much of what the Stoics thought about the world is lost to us. We have just little snippets here and there. But a good chunk of what we do have from the Stoics was for personal or private use. And I think that does make it unique among the philosophical traditions, for sure. What are other ways that the modern person, the modern American, whoever's listening to this, uh, can embrace or engage in, in Stoicism? Yeah, th there's a couple sort of popular Stoic exercises. One is memento mori, which is the meditation on one's mortality, which tends to put a lot of things in perspective. One of my favorite ones comes from Seneca. It's called premeditatio malorum or a premeditation of evils. So he thinks about the worst case scenario when he's when he's setting about his day. It's, let's say he was traveling, he's going on a journey by ship. He would think, well, we could get delayed here. We could get attacked by pirates, right? The boat could sink. I could get sick. I feel like it, I've his, traveled with those people before. Uh, right. I, that's kind of how I travel. Um, <laughs> but but he, he wasn't he wasn't saying be anxious. He was saying that you shouldn't be surprised by the things that happen to you in life. A lot of Stoic philosophy was preparation for the, the things that were outside of our control, which actually brings us to, I think, the core Stoic exercise that comes to us from Epictetus. He says that our chief task in life is to separate things into two categories, that which is up to us and that which is not up to us. 
if people who are people are familiar with the serenity prayer, the serenity prayer has its roots in, in Stoic philosophy, so does cognitive behavioral therapy. But it's this understanding that much of what upsets us, much of what we get worked up about in life is us emoting about things or worrying about things or stressing about things that are really outside of our control and that this is a recipe for misery. So, so how does that work? How do you uh, go about, what is the exercise that you need to engage in to try to keep your eye on the prize and ignore the things you can't control? Because they well, seem it- sometimes, Ryan, so overwhelming. I hear it from people who follow my news account being like, how do you stay measured? How do you keep covering? Because it seems like every day something terrible happens. Well, it's true. Look, the Stokes were certainly engaged in the world. They participated in public affairs. They ran for public office. So they weren't like retreating to the garden. That's what the Epicureans did, their rivals. At the same time, I do think there is a habit now with social media when we have access to unlimited information to all news in the world to consume things that uh, upset us or worry us, but are largely outside of our control or even outside of our sphere of of interest. I'll give you an example. I remember a couple years ago there was a there was a hurricane coming towards Texas. I think it was Hurricane Harvey. Now I live in Central Texas. It didn't come all the way to us, but it did sit over Texas for several uh, several days. It flooded where I lived. It was a whole problem. So my wife and I were glued to the Weather Channel, consuming information about this freak storm that was coming our way to know whether we should evacuate, to know whether our neighbors were okay, right? To know what we needed to do. So we spent several days, you know, watching the news about Hurricane Harvey. And then I remember almost immediately after Harvey left, there was another storm headed towards Florida. I think this was the Atlantic coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. And I remember we just rolled over. We just kept watching the weather channel. And at some point it hit me. It seems obvious, but it hit me. I, I, I remember saying to my wife, you know, we don't live in Florida. Why are we watching this? Right. And we were consuming the news because it had become entertaining. It had become uh, not not in a positive way it had become consuming. Yep. Uh, we were worried about it. But there was no information that we would be consuming here that would affect our life in any way or that we would apply in any way. That's not to say that I don't care about what happens to people in Florida, but I can wait for the news to have happened as opposed to consuming that news in real time, right? Uh, The election is a good example here. The Republicans will pick a nominee at some point. I'm not a Republican voter. I don't live in a swing state. I will not be voting in the Republican primary, right? So whether it's DeSantis or Trump or Haley or uh, Scott, really that I even know any of these people's names, right, is not actually relevant to my life yet. And I am torturing myself in advance by following the horse raceness of this, as opposed to focusing on what I can control, where I can have an impact with my own children, with my own work and my own community, et cetera. Um, And by, by following this in real time, it's actually coming at the expense of what I could be doing with what I actually control. Yes, a a reminder to all listeners that the system we have here in the US is not normal. Many countries around the world have a 30-day election or a 60-day election. We have a constant election. 
And we sit here as we record this, Ryan, it was a, we're just actually recording this a couple hours after Joe Biden has announced his intention to run for re-election in April of 2023. <laughs> and given there was no real Democratic primary, at least not one that we can see happening right now, the first time you will be able to vote for Joe Biden again is next November in a year and a half. Well, and it's a great example, right? If everyone who watched the news voted, we would have very different politics in America. Sure. Um, it's it's remarkable how informed people are about what's happening in the world and then refuse to take the one legal bit of of impact that they can have on what's happening in the world and then that they let go. And so for the Stoics, it wasn't about apathy per se. It was about ignoring the things that you don't have control over so you can focus the entire energy on what you do control. A, a great example, I have this book coming out next week. Me sitting here thinking, how's the New York Times going to treat me? How are the reviews going to be? Are people going to like it or not? That's energy that I could be spending marketing, but it's also energy I could have spent six months ago writing a better book, right? And so I try to focus my energy towards the areas that I have impact as opposed to chewing my fingernails or, or fretting about if something's going to go my way or not. That's just going to happen. So let's talk about your new book, Daily Dad. Um, but you say it's, it's meant for both parents. Um, yes, yes. What inspired you to write it? Um, and what's unique about how stoicism can be applied to raising children? Well, with, with the Daily Stoic, I, I found two things. One, um, that I got a ton out of writing one piece of parent, uh, one piece of philosophical advice every day. And I've continued that now. I've, do, I've done the email every day for almost eight years. So I got a lot out of creating it. Uh, but also people got a lot out of reading it. There's something about the page a day format or the email a day format or the post a day on Instagram format that really works well as a reminder. In, in this world of chaos, Ryan, and, and being overwhelmed, yes. a manageable one thing that just takes a minute or two is is a breath of fresh air. That's right, but I, but I and I also think checking in with something every day as opposed to reading it once in one sitting mm -hmm. is a very different interaction with the material. And so what I found when I when I first had kids or my wife and I first had kids was that um there was a problem with the parenting books. You know, you're reading a parenting book, you have a 2-year-old and it's giving you advice that you're supposed to apply when they're 16. And you're like, how am I supposed to remember this, right? And so so I wanted to take some of the best advice, not just from the Stoics, but from all the philosophical traditions, also from psychology, also from you know behavior specialists. And I wanted to uh, put it in the format that you read once a day in the morning or at night. And it just gives you something to chew on. And that hopefully returning to it you know, year in and year out allows you to apply that idea in the unique situations you're in. One, one of the really cool lines in Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, he's quoting the, the poet Heraclitus, he talks about how we never step in the same river twice. The idea is that we're changing and the river is changing. And there's something about returning to the same ideas in a book over and over again that allow you to get something out of it differently than if you sat down and read it once in one sitting at one singular point in your life. What are a couple of the lessons I'd love you to take take me through it or, or things that most surprised you, you weren't expecting as you began your research, as you were writing, that you're like, 
if you had asked me as I began this book, if there would have been a chapter on this or, uh, you know, uh, these lessons, I would have said, no way. I, what are those? Well, I'll give you a, a stoic thing I've been thinking a lot that I think pertains not just to parents, but to, to people in, in our position, people who are watching or listening to this. Um, one of my favorite lines from Marcus Aurelius is, is he talks about how um, we always have the power of having no opinion, right? That we don't have to have an opinion. And in fact, most of what upsets us in life is having opinions about things that we don't need to have opinions about. And actually, just the other day, Elon Musk uh, retweeted something from Daily Stoic, and I I gently reminded him of this idea because we get ourselves in trouble when we have unnecessary opinions and judgments about things. And one of the things that I've found with my kids is the more opinions I have about stuff, how stuff should be, largely stuff that doesn't matter, the more arguments or fights or conflicts there are, right? Why do I actually care how they put their shoes down? Why do I actually care whether their elbows are on the table or not? Why do I actually care whether they eat their vegetables first or their dessert first? It all goes in their same stomach at the end, right? And realizing that having fewer opinions is a recipe to a happier home is something that uh, I talk a lot about in the book. And it's something that I, that I constantly struggle with as a, as, a, as a person who I would describe as an opinionated person. Because you feel obligated I guess also yes. we live in a world where like you feel obligated. People are like, what's your take on this? I, you know, living in the media world, uh, people are constantly saying, well, what do you really think about that? And I'm like, actually, I have no thoughts about that. Or frankly, I'm not informed about that to have thoughts. And why does it matter what my thoughts are on that? Well, the discipline that that takes when someone asks you your opinion to not share an opinion is, is I think, uh, an underrated feat of, of human strength. But the other thing I've found is how many things that I have opinions about that I realize I've never actually thought about, I just got from my parents or I got from television, right? Like, why do I, uh, my, my, my youngest picked out a, a purple or a pink shirt the other day. And, you know, there was this part of me that was going to go, no, you shouldn't have a purple or a pink shirt. And then I remembered, why do I don't, I've never, I, I have no thoughts on this, actually. I don't care about this at all. It's probably just something I heard some adults say to me at some point when I was a kid right? And so much of our opinions are things that we inherited from our own experiences in life that if we actually question, and so much of Stoicism is about, Epictetus talks about putting your impressions or your judgments to the test. Are they real? Are they counterfeit? Are they important? Are they up to you or not? And realizing that these things don't actually matter in any way. Um, you know, my parents didn't let me hang up posters on my on the wall in my room. Well, I, why was that? I don't know. Does it seem like it was a big deal in retrospect? No. But if my son wants to hang up posters in his wall, I think paint is very cheap. So I'm not going to have an opinion about it. He can do what he wants, right? And, and just realizing that a lot of the opinions that we have have never been questioned, have never been considered. And if we considered them, we might abandon them and thus be happier. There's a lot of competing parenting philosophies these days. There's helicopter yes. parenting. There's free range parenting. Snowplow uh, parenting. Snowplow, yeah, snowplow parenting. We can go through all the definitions another time. But where do you fall on this? What have you learned, um, Ryan? And where do the Stoics fall? And, and how much of the Stoic writing was regarding raising their own children? Yeah, there's certainly something they talk about a lot. Uh, certainly, uh, many of the Stoics had uh, had children. Uh, Marcus really had twelve children which is both interesting and then also tragic because uh, half of them 
uh, don't make it to adulthood. Mm. Um, but I think what the Stoics were trying to do is create resilient, self-sufficient, virtuous people, right? And so I, I don't know if I would, um, if there is a specific uh, name for that kind of parent, but I'm trying to raise kids who can, um, who can bounce back, uh, who focus on things that are in their control, and then ultimately have a, a strong moral compass about, you know, sort of what they will and won't do, you know, whether my kid goes to this college or that college, you know, whether they make a lot of money or a little bit of money, I, I just, I don't care about those things the way that, it, you know, those things seem to be very, very important to my parents. One thing before we go here, and I appreciate yeah. you taking the time here, Ryan, when we talked about applying lessons of the Stoics, uh, self-control, discipline to your daily yeah. life. I know you've talked about how when you wake up, you don't touch your phone for the first half hour, an hour. I, I wish I had that level of discipline. Uh, talk to me about that and some other lessons practically that people can take away from listening to this podcast uh, that can help them when it comes to self-control and discipline and helping to achieve achieve the lessons of, of, of your recent book, Discipline is Destiny. I think starting the day off right is is very very important. I feel like if I own the morning, uh, if I get if I get the important things done right in the morning, if I start the day off right, you know, every everything else is a bonus from there. So this morning I got up pretty early. Uh, I didn't touch the phone right away. Uh, my my oldest son and I went for a walk uh, outside. We went down to the little market down the street. We got some breakfast. We picked up coffee for my wife. We walked home, we spent some time together, you know, then I took them to school. And then I came here to my bookstore and I, and I sat down and I did the writing that I, the, the most important piece of writing that I needed to do for the day. And, you know, now I'm talking to you, I have a, a podcast I have to record later, uh, I have some errands to run. Um, if I get back to some other creative stuff, great, but I've already had, it's, it's 11.08 here, Central Time. I've already had a pretty successful day. I got family time in. I was outside. I was active. I got some creative work done, you know? Um, and, and I find if I can just have a good morning, consistently published work comes out of the other side of that. You mentioned working 20 hour days. I haven't worked a 20 hour day in a very long time, but I find if I can be consistent and, and, I can uh, make a contribution every single day that, that good stuff comes out of the other side of that. So we often think of discipline as this perfectionism, yeah. but I think discipline is much, much better as a form of consistency. Ryan Holiday, I'm so grateful for uh, you joining me for this conversation. I feel like I'd, I'd love to have you back in the future. There's so many different um, uh, roads we can wind down here. I'm wishing you luck with the new book, Daily Dad. Uh, what is the best way since you're you know sort of ubiquitous these days, Ryan, for people to connect with uh, what you're doing on a day to day basis, uh, I think I think because so many people know you from Instagram, I would just follow the Daily Stoic <laughs> at Daily Stoic on Instagram. Great, Ryan, thank you. Thank you. I've I've loved your stuff. I've gotten a ton out of it, and I appreciate it. I think it's a public service. Thank you, Ryan. 
as we conclude here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast episodes like this one and extra content on our private Instagram members account. It is a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support independent journalism, but also access extra content, extra insight, extra behind the scenes videos and interviews. You can join Mo News Premium right now for just $7 a month or $70 a year. The annual membership actually gets you two free months there. There's also a lifetime subscription available. You can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. Again, mo.news slash premium. So grateful if you would consider joining us here. Thanks everyone for listening. I'll see you soon.